to Unsupervised Leadership, episode three, season three. <laughs> We're in luck because that rhymes again. <laughs> in 2023. Yeah. yeah. This is great. And today we have a fantastic person on our podcast. In all honesty, this is probably one of the best people that we've ever interviewed. Would you agree? Yeah. I think that all of our interviews are pretty amazing, but we tried to get him previously and we couldn't make it happen, but I feel like timing is everything. And now this is just super cool timing. So we'll, we'll give you a preview on who that's going to be as we get near the end of our intro. How about that? Oh, that's fun. People are probably wondering what we're drinking today. Guys, we're still, (laughs) we're still not doing dry January. No, we're doing damp January. And actually, it's February now. I know. So we're doing damp January and February, mm. which means that we're not drinking a lot, mm. but we are still occasionally drinking things that we like. <laughs> uh, and we're still struggling to lose weight. <laughs> but we're having a lot of conversation about it, mm-hmm. as usual. And I'm sure that we have listeners that are still on the same path and journey with us. Yeah. And our guest today actually Mm. inspired me Mm. after we listened to him and interviewed him because this person goes on the Peloton and they were, and I always thought they were cheating full disclosure because (laughs) their output was like insane. Mm -hmm. Like I'd be on that bike busting my ass for like 30 minutes and I barely get 300. (laughs) I would be like, I'm doing a good job. And then I would see this person and they'd have like an 800. And I'm thinking like, Jesus, did they take the bike off the stands and just ride around their neighborhood up a hill? Like I'm confused. And so he shared that he rides on a hundred resistance for however long the ride is. So he doesn't necessarily listen to the ride on the Peloton or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So last night, I thought it was a good idea for me to try this. I said, if he could do this, I could do this. So I get in my basement and I get on the bike and I turn the resistance up to a hundred and I do a 15 minute ride. And I now sent me a video. Yeah, I I sent Courtney a video and I said to myself, I now know what it probably feels like to go into cardiac arrest. Yeah. I mean, that's dangerous. You really need to be careful about that because if you listen to what he said, he does that regularly. Mm -hmm. And so his body is conditioned. You need to be careful. This is my advice and <laughs> plea to you. Yeah. Please be careful. I, I could do the 15 minutes mm-hmm. and I got, I mean, I wasn't like, how'd you feel today? Great. I'm not sore or anything, mm-hmm. but like, I thought to myself, this is kind of what it felt like when I was running the marathon and it took only 15 minutes. But one of the pieces of advice that we continue to get as women is that we should back off the cardio mm-hmm. and instead go for the weights Yeah, that the weight training is better for women than the cardio piece. If you are trying to lose weight. So yeah, I'm only going to do the hundred resistance one day a week. (laughs) That's my new, you listen, I did for 15 minutes. I'm really proud of you. You lose like 330 calories. This is ridiculous. It's two Corona lights. (laughs) No, which we had yesterday Yeah, before she went on the bus. (laughs) There was a substantial time. Difference there. Right. Corona's at like 12. I didn't get on the bike till like 8 p.m. Right. Right. Which again, some of our listeners, they understand this and it makes total sense. It makes total sense. Well, we have Dr. PJ Capozzi with us today. 
And PJ is a superintendent, but he is also a national speaker. He is an author. One of the things that I love best about PJ is that he is in the seat doing the work and he knows education. He lives education, but he also gives so much of himself to outside of his own school district, which I believe makes him an even better superintendent as a school district superintendent. PJ is the Illinois superintendent of the year currently. He was recently named that in November, represents us in Illinois incredibly well, so much so that he is a national finalist for the National Superintendent of the Year. There are only four superintendents across this country who have that honor, and he is one of them. And so we will be seeing him standing on stage in San Antonio at the National Conference here just in a few weeks, days from when this is going to air. And we're thrilled. And so we get really in-depth with him today Mm -hmm. about that process. If you're an educator, and especially if you're a superintendent, I'd listen in because he he really told us everything about that process, which I thought was so enlightening. And he does talk a little bit about his health journey and, and certainly the Peloton, which you've locked in on yeah, as well. But he talks a lot about work-life fit and integration. And we learn a lot during this interview about things that we are doing that we should stop and things that we probably should start doing. He's just a great leader. He really is. And, you know, we interviewed him and I went home and Tony was like, oh, how'd the interview go? I'm like, oh my gosh, great. And I started rattling off all these things that PJ had said. I also did that with one of my girlfriends that called me later on, but that's when I can really tell that when someone says something, it sticks. Mm -hmm. Um, He makes a great point, which you guys will hear soon about you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably one of the first times in my life I've ever heard somebody say that and actually mean it because think of how many women were like, you can do that. You could be a mom. You could be a leader. You could be a sister, a friend, an author, a podcaster, (laughs) and you're supposed to be good to all of them. And don't forget to make dinner. And don't forget that you're not supposed to eat that many calories and make sure you get the work on time. And you're this person's best friend and make sure you check on your mom. And people probably can do that for like two months and then they're exhausted and defeated. Something has to give. But don't you see that as females, I think that we do feel like we have to be everything to everybody all of the time. Females are not as good about compartmentalizing as males can be. I know that's a generalization, but Mm -hmm. in, in, you know, working with a lot of women, I do feel like exactly what he said that we feel like we have to be everything to everybody all of the time and do it at the highest, highest level. I mean, Mm -hmm. at some point everything breaks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's only so much space you can hold for different people at different times. It's being intentional. You know, one thing PJ talks about that you guys will hear is that you have to decide and have good communication skills with your spouse or whoever you're with that this is my priority for this month. It might be, you know, your health, your finances, your family, your job, your education, um, whatever that is, you really have to zone in and know what that is and then communicate that and be on the same page. And I think about how many fights that would save people if they thought about it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're right about that though, because I think though, as women, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and that we don't have those conversations because we just go and do it. Yeah. We just go and do it. So, you know, if Elle's got some type of something at school 
I'm going to have to figure out a way. I'm going to have to rearrange everything. I'm going to have to be there, be there, be there. And if I'm not, then you harbor all of this guilt. So it's like this constant struggle with all of those avenues that you talk about. And even if you're not a mom and you are an educator, you still feel like you're the mom of 2,500 kids Yeah, at work. So it's like this, um, it's a pressure that we put on ourselves that never, ever goes away. No, it doesn't. And I mean, especially if you're in any type of leadership capacity, whether that's a team leader, Mm -hmm. a principal, a superintendent, anything, you are in charge of multiple adults on any given day. And do you know what happens to multiple adults on every given day? They have issues with their spouse, their kids acting up at school. They have financial issues. They've got unresolved trauma. They have some fight they have with their sister. Like you, I feel, I shouldn't say you, I feel the responsibility to help them through those things. Because I think if I do actually, no, I know when I do, they're a better person for my kids at school. Yes. But at the same time, it takes away from you, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's part of our challenge and struggle in education that educators just constantly give and give and give and give to everybody around them. And then we've got family issue dynamics because we're giving everything to our jobs and then we can't figure out that balance, but then we're putting so much pressure on ourselves. And it is this vicious cycle that we get ourselves in that we can't get out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm only good at holding the line on one thing what and that's it? it. It's when an adult will come to me about another adult. And I learned this phrase when I was in college called go to the source hmm. and mm-hmm. you can come tell me anything and I can listen and I will say, you know, do you want my advice? Do you just want to vent? Like what's going on? But I will not entertain any type of story. If somebody comes to me and says, I'm coming to complain about this person, whether it be a coworker, Mm. a parent, um, anybody, and you have not given that opportunity to that person to talk things through. I can't, I will not do it. I won't hold space for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's the only thing I know about myself definitively. Which I think makes you a great principal because you're establishing a culture that people know word gets out very quickly. I went to Kate. Kate didn't solve my problem. Kate made me go back to the source and have a conversation. And people then go and they talk about that because I'm going to wager that if I do come to you, I've probably gone to another colleague first Mm -hmm. to talk about it. And it's not the colleague that I have an issue with. Right. Not every time is that going to happen, but I think in organizations everywhere, it doesn't have to be education. I think Mm -hmm. that happens all of the time. So the question is, why don't we just go directly to the source? Yeah. What's our issue with that? But why, why do you think that doesn't happen? I think because think about it. I mean, especially for females, when you're in middle school, when you're in high school, nobody goes to the source. It's like in movies, it's dramatized about how you go and you tell your other friend about this friend, take mean girls, look at Regina George. (laughs) That's a prime example of why that doesn't happen. (laughs) Look at Real Housewives. Yeah. I love Real Housewives. Yeah. Even Southern Hospitality. Oh, I love that show. I'm so glad you're watching it now. Yeah, me too. I love it. It's such a train wreck. It's great. Those girls do that. They got a problem with one another. And instead of talking to each other, they pull their friend like in the back kitchen and they're like, can you believe so-and-so did this? And then it turns into this big dramatic (laughs) fight and everyone's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) One of the best things though, about all those shows is that they privately interview people 
And so when you're having that private interview, so it's the producer and then it's the female talking about whatever issue that she has, she lets it rip. She goes off. She talks about all of these people. And the best thing is this is national television. So then all of these other people, even though you don't say it to the source, you're still saying it. The other people then see what you've said, and then they put them all on a reunion. (laughs) And Andy Cohen does such a great job of, you know, navigating this train wreck because then they all have said it behind each other's backs. Just go to the source and I bet you could solve a lot, but that's why we love reality TV. Yeah. And they also wouldn't put on a person on the show that goes to the source. Cause they'd be like, this girl sucks. Like you're never going to yeah, be on there. She just goes to the person and doesn't I want to be, no, I want to be, but <laughs> I've always said there should be a real housewives of, yeah, of Chicago. <laughs> you know what else I love that PJ said that really stuck with me. And I don't even think I told you this mm. is my perception of PJ because I've <clears> seen him and I've met him a couple of times in a professional setting at conferences And I don't know if it's because of his age, because he's somewhat younger, but I always assumed that his um, philosophy was like putting people first and like building a relationship with them, which he does. And he does very well, Mm -hmm. but you guys will find out later in this interview that he talks about when he had first started thinking about people as almost like a cog in the machine. Like Mm -hmm. I, they need to do their job. I hired them. This is what they're there to do. And maybe it was because of, you know, his age when he started and he was so young that he felt like he needed to prove himself to people Mm -hmm. or what, but it was such a life altering moment for me to understand that sometimes that evolution of seeing people from workers to humans and what's more important was so powerful. Yeah. He's a powerful guy. And I don't say that from a title standpoint, right? I think he's a mentally and emotionally powerful person to get us thinking about the things that really matter. I mean, he's got a great personal story of triumph and comeback and all of these challenges that he's faced. And he's also a great superintendent, but there's a lot of people that probably have some perceptions about him and talk about him without really knowing him. And we get to that in this interview too, which um, I'm glad that he touched upon that. Yeah. I just, cause I started thinking, again, you listen to somebody and you start thinking about yourself and your own journey. Right. And I think I've always been a people, people person, just because that's my personality. And there are times where I could probably be better at like the cog in the machine piece of like a business perspective of things. Um, so it was nice to see those two marry each other when he was talking. Well, in one of our upcoming episodes is going to be the two of us interviewing each other. And because of PJ's interview, I actually had some really, um, reflective, thoughtful questions that I'm going to include in my interview of you for our listeners. Oh, geez. I can't wait. I'm going to practice my questions and I'm going to come up with what you rather questions. No, (laughs) I know everywhere I go, people are like, I love it when you guys do, would you rather? I'm like, what about the interviews? They're like, those are great too. But what we really love is the, would you rather? Yeah. I think because people want to know that's like a real talk level, (laughs) you know, like we still are concerned that you would rather have to go to the bathroom on vacation one day at work. <laughs> I take my job very seriously, as we've known. Yeah, I mean, we get it. <laughs> we totally get it. Well, we are excited for our listeners today to hear from Dr. PJ Capozzi. Um, he, you are just really going to take a lot away from his interview. And without further ado, though, before we get to that, we do need to hear from our Sparkle sister, None other than Dr. Bhavna Sharma-Lewis with this week's Sparkle Spotlight. 
Hi, this is Bhavna Sharma Lewis with today's Sparkle Spotlight. Fighting the aging process is like trying to catch the wind. Go with it, enjoy it, embrace it. Your body is changing, but it always has been. Don't waste time trying to reverse that. Instead, change your mindset to see the beauty in the new. Cheers to living your best life. Sparkle on. Kate, this is the moment that we've been waiting for, isn't it? It It really is. is. Well, let me tell you, today we have PJ Capozzi on. And as we all know, PJ is not only an incredible superintendent, national speaker, author, you know, we've just did our whole intro of him, but PJ is also the Illinois superintendent of the year. And we're going to get to this, but he is a final four, a finalist out of four people across this country for the national superintendent of the year. PJ, welcome to unsupervised leadership. Thank you for having me. Been a fan of the show for a while. And even though you don't believe me when I would tweet it out and you'd text me and I'd have to prove it by giving you the clips <laughs> I liked, I have been a big fan. <laughs> totally thought you were full of it. I'm not going to lie. But we, <laughs> listen, we are thrilled that you are here. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Kate for our very first question. Let's go. Let's do it. All right, PJ. Number one, I'm really glad you're my new best friend. This is great. <laughs> number two, we have two really important questions for our listeners. Who you are, what your favorite drink is, and how you cheat on Peloton, because I see you on there and you're always getting like a 700 output and I, we all need to know how. So uh, I am PJ Capozzi, Superintendent of Schools, Meridian 223, um, grew up in Illinois on the South Side, and then uh, Chicago Public Schools to Rockford Public Schools, and now I'm kind of small town rural right around um, uh, the Rockford area. Favorite drink is, um, so it's interesting. So I probably have a hundred bottles of bourbon that I'm actually looking directly at. I can pan to it if you want to, but bourbon would not be my favorite drink. My favorite drink would be Cuddle One Dirty on the rocks with blue cheese olives. So that's that's by far the number one. Um, I just kind of collect the the bourbon and I also can't make the Cuddle One appropriately at home. So it's like an order out drink. Um, Whereas the bourbon, you just pour it in a glass. So it's a much more at home drink. And then the Peloton, um, just set the resistance up to a hundred and stand the whole time. And see how far you can go. So that's oh god. It's, so it's it's not following the the course at all or the playlist. So it's my own playlist, my own headphones. Turn resistance up all the way. Stand and go as hard as you can for as long as you can. Oh wow! Okay, that sounds like I'm gonna have to work up to that. It's in yeah. What my wife will ask, like, why are you choosing to suffer? And I'm like, well, the suffering is the point. Um, so it's it's a thing. Okay, this is good. When I get to this point, I'll let you know, and then we can do like a five-minute ride if they have those. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, we'll, do, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll have a challenge on a cool down. That's, that's yeah, yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Cool down ride. That's yeah. great for me. <laughs> so let's be honest. I'm not going to participate in that whole thing with the Peloton, but Kate talks about it all the time. She's like, did you see what PJ did today with his output? And I have to talk to him about it. I'm like, girl, you can talk to him about all of that. He'll give you the... 411 on it. So we do have a lot of listeners that are Peloton users. So this is a good trick. And did I see that you're bench pressing like 500 pounds or what's happening with this? So No, that's a deadlift, but um, yeah. Oh, so it, oh um, that's what I meant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, that. It, so like, it's interesting, right? That's the stress relief thing. If I, if I get on and ride at four 30 in the morning, it's a better day. It doesn't mean that it happens all the time. And the lifting is fun. Cause a lot of times that's with the students. So as soup, you know, like the worst part about being a superintendent is the distance from kids 
Um, so a lot of the times, even though I have a gym in the basement of our house, it doesn't typically get used, but after school, if I can go hang out with kids and, um, and do that. And that's, again, it's like one of the few things that keeps kids thinking that I'm kind of cool, right? Like when I became a principal at 27, I was kind of cool. Um, at 42, I'm no longer cool at all, like in any way, except for maybe a good dad joke once in a while. Um, but if I can still go out, lift them, I'm still, I'm still fairly cool. I love that. 42 years old in the Illinois superintendent of the year. Let's jump into it. Are you ready? I have a couple questions about this. Let's do it. First of all, um, I was there the day that you were able to talk to the board of directors in Illinois about your acceptance of this award. And very few superintendents get that type of award and nomination. So first of all, congratulations. You were so genuine. And I was just so thrilled for you in that moment because it's a big deal. Then all of a sudden we find out you are one of the finalists out of four superintendents across this country for the national superintendent of the year, which will be announced in San Antonio. I'm going to be right there in the front row screaming your name. It's going to be so super awkward for you, but I can't wait for this moment for you. I want you to talk a little bit about um, your feelings about the process and what might surprise people who aren't superintendents, or maybe they are superintendents about either of those processes that you went through. Talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing's a little weird. Um, and so I think that if you like go into the superintendentship seeking recognition, you're going to have a miserable time, right? Like, so if, if you do it right, the, the work is the reward. Um, so then things like this come along and it's, it's, it's so few and far between that you have to kind of cherish it, but then you get in the moment and then it becomes competitive and all that, you know, those genes kick in and you want to win. So it's this very weird of like trying to soak in the moment and be appreciative uh, and allow yourself to be honored um, without also trying to go like totally alpha brain and, and want to win and destroy competition. Right. So um, the, the interesting part is, so last year when we did the, a lot of regions, this is how it typically works. It's not the way it has to work in Illinois, but there's the regions of IASA. They nominate um, people for recognition. And then if you win that, then that's typically who submits to the state. Um, so last year in our region, I was nominated a handful of times by my peers, which that means a lot, right? Because those are the people that really know the work you're doing. Um, but one of the other applicants was who I nominated. And so the region called and said, "Are you? do you want to keep your name in the, the ring or do you want to pull out so that this other person might get the recognition? And so I chose to pull out, but they said, Hey, just keep in mind that even if you're not the regional winner, you can still apply for the state. And we'd like you to represent us at the state level. So I pulled, so I didn't, in, the, in theory, I didn't win our region. I, mean, I literally, I guess I didn't win the region for um, IASA, but then I just put in the application for the state and I kind of did it all on the same day and then didn't think about it um, for, for a long time. Um, I mean, sincerely just kind of lost track of it. Uh, and then I get a call from, I get done, get off the stage, given a keynote in Dallas. And I get a call from, from Brent Clark, who somehow I don't have saved in my phone. Um, and it doesn't come up as Brent because I think he has a different actual first name. So I'm like, who the hell is like, whatever his first name was, I had no idea. Um, and so I didn't call back right away because I'm like, I just, whatever. Um, and then I listened to the voicemail. I'm like, oh, I got to call him back. But again, it had been so long since I had nominated myself that I had no idea what it was for. I just figured um, like either Brent had a project for me or I had screwed up some way that, you know, politically that it, that it angered him because um, I have a tendency to be outspoken on some things. But I usually ask for permission. Um, and so then when he, he called, like I, you know, I was very thankful, but it didn't really hit me until I called my wife. And then like I got 
choked up telling her. And it was interesting because it's hard to articulate what, how meaningful something is to you. Um, and in the moment, I didn't really realize it. And even when I submitted the application, like it never thought, like came across like, oh, I really want this. Or if I win this, it would be so amazing. Um, but then trying to articulate it was very um, difficult. And then from there, you know, one of the immediate things that IASA tells you is like, all right, one of your duties is this is then you have to put in for the national award. One of the things that is different about Illinois than I learned at the finalist interviews this last week is that we don't follow the same application process AASA does. So the other three didn't turn in a national application that the state application is a mirror of the national application. So then they just hit submit. Um, so the turnaround time between learning of it in Illinois and then submitting it to nationals is tight um, the way that we did it in Illinois. So that was incredibly, um, that was stressful because it's like 4,000 word essays, which isn't a ton, but then you have to do a two minute video introducing yourself, um, a five minute video in support of yourself, and then you can upload any supporting documents you want to. So of course, that's when the competitive nature kicks in. You're like, well, I'm going to, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Um, so that was intense getting it, getting it turned in. Um, then you learn the recognition um, at the national level. And then from there, it's, you go down to the interviews, which were this past week in DC. And then that's a whole nother thing in and of itself. So tell us a little bit about that. You're sitting, you get this notification that you're a final four across the country. And now you're sitting there in DC interviewing with these three other superintendents from across the country. What really surprised you about that process? So they kind of make it like miserable and it's ingenious at the same time. So it's this, it's like, um, so the interview isn't just the interview. So you, you have an interview and then you have a press conference, but then you have like multiple dinners and lunches, which also are part of like the collective. Um, so like you're playing like musical chairs, trying to make sure you get like, you sit next to a judge and not like an AASA staffer, like trying to ensure like, and it's just this weird um, and so the first night, all the, all the candidates are standing together and then, um, there's like one table and like, we're all like, I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to navigate and do this, which is like not my comfort zone at all. Uh, and then like two of them sat down next to each other and then I'm like, well, I'll sit down. And then all of us sat together and didn't sit with the judges. And like, at least we all screwed it up together. Right. Like, and so, um, but it was, that was kind of cool. Cause you got to know the other candidates and what kind of becomes very clear is like, whatever the criteria they happen to be looking for. Like, I think one of the four of us would like be a slam dunk choice, right? Like, so like, depending on what they were looking for, like, I think I like either finished first or last, right? Of the four. Um, and so it, it kind of puts you at peace because like, if they're looking for this, it's not me. If they're looking for this, then I'm probably the guy. And so it just kind of lets you move through the week with a little bit more freedom. Um, but it's interesting because you get competitive and you're trying to do the thing, but like at the end, it's like, whatever that panel is looking for, whatever AASA is looking for in that moment, they're going to find who it is. Cause we like, I think it's the beauty, right? Like of the superintendency is like, we all do it so differently, even though it's the exact same job. And so whatever it was that they were looking for, I think will, will manifest itself um, when we go. When will you know, are you going to know just when you are standing on that stage and that's when you find out? Cause I was a finalist for the women in leadership award, as you know, finalist who lost, which is fine. Cause I lost to the national humanitarian of the year. So I was cool with that, but I found out standing on that stage in front of thousands and thousands of people, do they give you a heads up in advance? Do you know, or so it depends are we going to know that? 
right? Oh, so that's cool. one of the okay. things that, um, that, you know, you start doing your homework and it's funny because I felt like I was stalking all the judges, right? Like I could tell you, like one of them, like in small talk, I worked in that I knew she played the violin. She's like, how'd you know that? I'm like, well, I stalked you. Um, <laughs> and so um, as, as you go through right. it, but whenever you talk to the winners, so like Schuler obviously was a winner from here. So I called him and um, he's like, no, I learned on stage. And like, he went into great detail about how he learned on stage because his board president really wanted to go and he told them not to go. Then he won. Then his board president was frustrated that he didn't go like all of these things. But when you talk to any of the losers, not losers, like the runners up, right. Um, they'll tell you like, like well, when we get there, you're going to see one person has 14 people in attendance. And that's the person who always wins. And so like, it's funny. It's like, there's this conspiracy that anyone that's a runner up, thinks that the the winner knows um whereas the the winner swears that they they were unaware so in theory i'll learn february 16th oh we can't wait we just can't wait (laughs) um okay so as you know our podcast we have educators that listen women listen males listen but really we focus on women in leadership so what is your view on women in leadership and what does unsupervised leadership mean to you I think women in leadership in education is interesting, right? Like just the data, right? Like just looking at the fact that we're in a, a mostly female industry that's mostly male led is probably troublesome. Um, so it's, it's interesting because it's um, how do we facilitate that better? How do we use positions of authority and power to ensure that, that that's what is, is occurring? Um, and how do we prevent the good old boys network from becoming what the dominant force in, in what occurs. And I think a lot of what you guys are doing and a lot of what Courtney um, has done statewide has helped that. But I think it's just something that probably should be discussed. Like why do most superintendents look, you know, like me, which is white and male, right? Like, so, um, and it's gotten better. Like it's dramatically, like I remember my first ISA, um, I went home and I told my wife, I'm like, everyone looks old, fat and red faced. Like, I don't want to be that when, it, but I was like, I was like 31. Right. Like, and everyone looked so old. And now like, I, I'm like, I'm becoming one of the old guys, you know? So um, um, it's a matter, but between that time of when I went to my first ISA conference 10 years ago, and now it is much more diverse in every possible way. Um, so I think we're on the, the road to doing it. Um, but I think it's a little bit different. I think that's just the, the 10,000 foot view. I think, The complexities of females in leadership particularly um, are different, right? Like I think that um, what I've learned in leading women leaders is that there are some things that are just inherently more difficult um, for Mm -hmm. our female leaders that just are barriers that we have arbitrarily constructed for them um, that makes it a little bit more difficult to be successful in the world. Whereas like I get compliments all the time because I am direct and decisive. If a female leader were to do that, they'd have different adjectives for her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, it, it's the exact same behavior, just associated different ways as um, is, is a really interesting thing to try to conceptualize and deal with. Um, and so I think like that to me is the, the challenge is how do we, like, even if the numbers equalize themselves, right? Like even if the proportions are better, I think those barriers are still going to be in place. And I think that's why the support system is is so important in terms of trying to help people understand. Because again, if I make a bold, decisive decision or I'm really direct at a board meeting, like that's seen as a sign of strength, whereas it's not when some of my female colleagues do that. And like, where do they have to go to get support and say like, yeah, you're still, you're leading, like continue doing what you're doing and, and moving forward. So I think um, there's, I think it's better, but there's a long way to go would be 
kind of my take on that. In terms of unsupervised leadership, I think in the brand that you guys are creating and what that means to me is ultimately like is just bold. Like is if I describe it in word, it was just like be who you are, have self-awareness, but then go after it passionately and with intensity. Um, and so like, that's one of the things that I try like, I, I take big swings, right? Like, um, so it's interesting, like, the, and I've written about this a little bit, but, but this year I've had more public success than I've ever had in, in my career, right? I've also had like monumental failures and lost out on a handful of things that I really wanted to either earn, achieve, win, et cetera. Um, but to me, that's kind of the beauty of it, right? Like, and is that you take big swings and you, you have big victories and then you also have um, setbacks. And I think this year's like been a really good example of like people don't notice the setbacks and then it's, so it just becomes an internal battle to make sure that your ego is healthy enough to not let those setbacks mm-hmm. define how you think about yourself. Yeah, that's a great point. We're going to quote you in our book, PJ. Okay. We're going to take that exact quote because it was great. We're all about quoting people and PJ would be someone who we would quote. PJ, what is the biggest misconception about you? Ooh, that's interesting. I think um, that I would, that I am, that I enjoy like accolades and things. So like, I think by default, like I get some attention because I produce a ton of content. Um, But like the worst part of my job is and not my actual job. So the superintendent is the superintendent, but like the, let me start over and say this, like I've got like five full-time jobs. So I'm a professor at like three different universities. I coach about 15 clients a year. I, by the end of this year, I've written 11 books in 12 years. Um, and then I do like 50 to 80 PD sessions a year. So um, that's, that's a lot. And I think the conception is like that I want the attention or awards from that. Like I, now, to be clear, I like the money that comes from it, but like the, the attention and the accolades like that, that is really uncomfortable for me, um, actually. Like I'm an introvert by nature. I prefer to kind of be reading and hanging out by myself. Um, so all of that is a manifestation of trying to do the work. Um, the attention is actually really uncomfortable. And like the marketing is the most uncomfortable. Um, like to try to reach out to somebody that I have a connection with, be like, hey, like I haven't broken into Pennsylvania yet. Can you hook me up with some warm leads? which is like a normal thing, like a friend would ask a friend, um, that is terrifying to me. Um, and so that part of the, the, the job is really uncomfortable. So I think the most um, thing that people would get wrong is that I, I like attention. I, I like doing the work and I like spreading the message. I actually don't enjoy the attention that much. Thank you for saying that. Cause I think that that is a absolute misconception about people that do the work, do the work really well, that they're out there, that other people talk about them all of the time. That doesn't mean that it has anything to do with the accolades. It really has to do with the passion for the work. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think more for me is like, you know, I think Courtney, you know, my, my medical history a little bit, and I've like had some significant, like, so, um, there's, there's a saying memento mori, which um, is, it, it's just a reminder that a lot of times in, uh, in life, like we're all one moment from death, which is kind of dark. Um, but it reminds like, I kind of try to live by that and try to squeeze every ounce of talent or capacity I have out of, of what I have, because you get one shot at this. Um, so I go really, really hard all the time. So for me, it's, it's just about proving to myself that I'm not wasting any talent or capacity. It's not about trying to prove that to anybody else. Um, and so that's, it's an interesting thing to try to help other people understand when they are, when they perceive doing work for attention, right? Like that's, that's their um, desire that that's not mine, but it's very easy to superimpose their desires onto the work that I'm trying to get done. 
You took the words right out of our mouth, PJ. That was our next question. Just asking you, we knew that you faced some health challenges when you were young. So talking to our listeners about it and what you learned about your life through that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I had cancer when I was 17, 35, and then 37 again. Um, so each time is a little bit different. The 37 was like an easy skin cancer. So that really didn't make big of a deal, but in essence, it was the same thing. But um, at 35, I had to have my thyroid removed and surgery and all of those things. At 17, I had Hodgkin's um, lymphoma, so chemo, radiation, et cetera. So I would say that um, the thing that I've learned is essentially that, right? Like that time is a really finite resource um, and that manifests itself in like massively different behaviors between 18 and 23. Like it was much more like um, YOLO, right? Like, uh, so like I realized that time was a finite resource, but I, I use that energy in potentially destructive ways. I mean, I had a great time um, doing it, but it wasn't like really being productive in, in doing those things. And then when I had my firstborn, um, who's now 16, that was when I kind of was like, okay, like this is now I've got to try to be an adult and, and try to go about it. So um Again, it's like the health challenges I wouldn't wish on my worst nightmare, but I wouldn't take back if I could either. So it's this weird kind of juxtaposition of like it's um, like health anxiety is something I deal with a lot, like um, which is very, very weird. And like I don't get stressed out about a lot of things. And I've got a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of things that could be anxiety causing. But like if I'm driving down the highway on an idle Tuesday, like I'm thinking about my mortality. Um, and so like that. Um, it's like this constant um, hurdle mentally to get over. So that would, I would say how it impacts me negatively the most, how it impacts me positively is that I'm up at 4.30 trying to produce because um, when you don't trust that time is this infinite resource, you try to make the most of what you have. So one of the things I know that I called you about was that everywhere I go, educators say, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. And I know that you've written so much on that particular work. And the day that you and I spoke, you were like, well, that's not a time issue. That's a you issue because time is, is finite. And I was like, wow, I want to punch you in the face. Like, I don't like hearing that because that's some real talk. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I always do when educators speak to that is that I refer them to a lot of the work that you've written about. So when you think about work-life in integration and everybody's struggling with that, what's your two-minute elevator speech for every educator who's listening? Um, so first of all, I, I would it, just in to skip all the other edu talk and whatever else, like in a keynote, I'd say it much more motivationally, but just to get down to real talk would just be essentially this is like, first of all, if you signed up for the job to be easy, it's not. So, and, and I don't know that any job worth doing is. So if we can start there, I think we're at a good point. The second part is let's talk about priorities. And so um, a lot of times when I speak, I start with two questions. Um, the first one is kind of the one that you previewed. I'll say, how many people have an issue with time management? Like 90% of the you know, hands in the thing. Then I say, how many people have an issue with self-management? And like 2% of the hands go up. I'm like, well, really, um, if you have time management issues, you have self-management issues. So that's the first one. The second one I always say is how many of you have your priorities in order? And again, 90% of the hands go up. And then I put up a slide that says, you got friends, family, your fitness, your faith, your finances, and your work. Which one of those have you deprioritized? And then everyone gets this like shocked look on their face. And like, because if all six are your priority, then none of them are your priority. Like very, very few people, not nobody, but very few people have the capacity to keep all six of those things a priority. So at some point, you're going to have to de-emphasize those things. The, the thing for me is that priorities don't have to be finite. So a lot of people are like, well, my family is the most important thing to me. Well, 
Yeah. Like the most, like if I was giving my eulogy today, like I would want somebody to say above anything else, that I was a good dad. Like that's the most important thing in the world to me. Um, and I know like family psychologists would say that should be like, I should put husband first, but like I, it, it's dad. Like that's what I would want. Like I would want dad to be first, but are there times where to chase my passions or to provide better or to do whatever that I put my work first? And the answer is yes. Like all of those, but those are done in stages, right? Like, so overall, do I want my family to be my priority? Of course I do. But does that mean that like in a three-week stretch in August, I'm going to be gone 18 of 21 nights speaking to pursue my passion, spread what I think is, you know, beneficial for the industry and for the world and to provide better for my family? Yes. Is it possible for me to say that in those 18 days where I sleep at home three times that I put my family first? I don't think so. So I think we just have to be honest with ourselves about kind of combining where our goals and what our dreams for self-actualization is, the societal roles and the norms that we've put in place and what it means to be a good dad, a good husband, a good son, a good whatever in place. And then also our ego. And if we can massage those three things together, we can develop our priorities. But if we're unwilling to do that, we're just like stagnant, like, no, I'm going to be the best this, the best mom, the best principal, the best this all in line with each other. You're going to set yourself up for failure because at different times, different things are going to rise. And if we're unwilling to say for a moment, hey, I've got to get my stuff done and I got to finish my dissertation. So for the next four months, like that might take precedence. Like, of course, being a mom is more important than finishing my dissertation. But in terms of how I'm actually going to block my time, I'm going to have to give myself this in order to do that. Um, I think we're always going to be feel like we're perpetually behind. Like, I think, um, like, honesty with ourselves about what is important and understanding that, like, all this stuff is is just not static, right? Like we can amend this at all times. Like I just trained for like some fitness thing. And so I was training like three hours a day for, it. is that sustainable? No, but for three months it is so I can achieve a goal, right? Like, and all of those things are in time. So are like, I sat down with my wife before I signed up for it. I said, Hey, I want to sign up for this. She's like, Oh, you're going to get obsessed about that. And I'm like, yes. I'm like, are we good? Like does this three months allow me to be obsessive about this? And she's like, yeah, we're good. Great. And now we had the conversation, had the talk with the kids. Hey, if you want to train with me, this is what I'm going to be doing, but I'm going to what? And then we, I did it right. Like, could I do that all the time? No, but uh, like, we just have to be honest with ourselves about some of those conversations and figuring out what that looks like for us. Hey, listen, I love that aside just to jump and say again, I think that's way harder for moms and wives than it is for husbands and dads. I think there's a lot more pressure and guilt associated with those roles and with my roles. So as we talked about it before in the role with women in leadership, now, I don't know that it has to be that way, but I think societally it is. Um, So it's, I think it's much easier for me to say, Hey, I'm not going to be at these practices or pick the kids up for that because I'm training for a long ruck than it would be for my wife to say that. So, um, and that's not fair. I just think that's the way that's true. uh, And I think it's okay to say that. Yeah, that's the reality of the situation. That's what you hear most of the time, probably when you speak. But I love that you said there is, you can't do everything at once. There's like this misconception that if you are really good at your job and you have a family that you're like some, you have some trick up your sleeve. Like I'm going to teach you how to do all of this and be great every single time in all of those areas, which it, it's not possible, but you're right. You just have to decide in that moment, what are you going to do? And hopefully you have a good relationship and good communication skills to be able to articulate that because that's really what it's about. Right. And there's like, and I think one of the things that we talk about least, and I think this is part of what comes up in education a lot is like, I think money matters in this, right? Because like mm-hmm. money buys you the opportunity to get more time. 
right? So um, the fact that our teachers are overwhelmed, I think, like, I think we need to understand that because there's some benefits that I get with some financial wherewithal that, that other people can't. So like, for instance, I don't mow my lawn, which is a little thing, right? But like, that means like, I have 30 additional hours in the year that other people don't have. And those things escalate, right? Like there's different things that take place in that too. But like, those are things that um, like when people are like, why do you work hard? And what's, you know, do you want to be written? Like, no, like the more that I work and the more money I get gives me the more opportunity to do the things that I actually want to do. And I think are going to have the most influence as opposed to the things that I don't enjoy doing, or I don't think have a lot of influence on things. Um, and so then I think we can extrapolate that to districts as well. Districts with a lot of money can hire more staff. So as superintendent, like, do I love doing Iowa's reports? No, I hate it. I don't have an assistant that can do them for me. Do I like doing grants? No. If we had more money as a district, it would afford me the opportunity to do more leadership stuff as opposed to more managerial stuff. So it just matters. Like, I think we're so afraid to talk about money societally, particularly in education, that we like, like money matters, right? Like it's in, like I wrote an article last year, like money doesn't, isn't, like having it isn't everything not having it is like I quoted the Kanye lyric, right? Because that's what happens, right? So it's not about like having it produces all these things for you, but not having it puts all these barriers in place. So when we talk about our teachers and they're talking about work-life balance, like a lot of that's coming financially as well. And I think we have to be able to have that conversation about what those differences are and what societally and globally our intent with education is, right? So what, why do we pay teachers what we do? Is there a reason behind it? What's the strategy? And that's not a district level thing. That's like, that's a state level, oh, national yeah. level thing as to what, like, where do we want our teachers to be positioned societally? Um, because I think if we answer that honestly, we'd, we'd have really some stark conclusions that we came to that we'd probably have to address. Amen. So let's talk about an education in 10 years right? Like if we have to think about it 10 years from now, we're all going to look the same. We're all going to be able to, you know, ride the Peloton the exact same way. Nothing's going to happen to us, <laughs> but in, in terms of the world, where do you think education will be in 10 years and where do you wish it would head if you had control over it? Good. I'm glad you asked it that way. So I think the truth is we're going to probably be really similar to what we are. And, and so like, I know like it's easy for me to get up on stage giving talks and saying like, is it okay that education is the same in 2033 as it is right now? Because it's a great way to start the conversation. But the answer is like what, especially pre-pandemic. So if you go 2018 to 2008, what was really different? Right? Like there wasn't a ton different. Like maybe there was a little bit ubiquitous technology going through, but at the end of the day, like our kids were leaving kind of in the same semblance. So I would say that most likely it's going to be pretty similar. I would say that what I would hope to happen is that we use crises for good. So I hope that we leverage the lessons that we learned in the pandemic to do a handful of things. So like, I don't think that geography should dictate um, access to high quality education, right? Like, I think that's a fundamental right. Like if I was secretary of education, that would be the, the thing that I talked about all the time. So I think there's two things that come into mind there. One is the urban setting, right? Because having taught in Chicago and led in, in Rockford, like I can tell you that some of the experiences those kids are having are not equal to what I received as in the suburbs as a student. But I will also tell you in rural America, it's even more profound. Um, so like we've worked like as hard as we can for a decade to provide opportunities for dual credit and AP classes for our kids, which are still less than what I experienced 25 years ago in the suburbs. At some point that has to not be okay. 
Um, and so if we learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we it doesn't have to be that anymore. We should be able to, um, and we're in some partnerships now, like have kids from downstate that don't have AP Calc zoom into our school because we have AP Calc, right? Like we should be able to start to create some really cool partnerships across district lines, but the way that we're funded through property tax presents some ego uh, and control issues as a result of that. So number one, that would be the biggest thing for me is that the, those walls are kind of knocked down and that in a state such as Illinois, any kid that wants access to a high quality, rigorous or, and not, not that CTE are not rigorous, but like what, like if you left in my area right now with a lot of experience working on diesel engines, you could probably go get a 50 to $60,000 job immediately. I don't have the means to create an auto shop where I can have our kids work on diesel engines. My neighboring district can. So how is that okay? Like, how are we okay with that societally? Um, so that to me would be the hope is that we start to break down some of those barriers um, and work a little bit better together. Um, in terms of, I think like, again, did Google change education? Yeah, like in, in a handful of ways. So do I think AI is gonna change education the same way that Google did? Yeah, I just think it'll be more incremental because again, when I look at what our kids are leaving with compared to what I left with in 1999 from Lincoln Way, go Knights, um, to, to now, like what I think that difference is subtle at best. Like it's not this profound different thing. So I don't think 2033 is gonna be this monumental shift um, I just hope that we've knocked down some of these gatekeeper policies that are set up out of um, greed or arrogance or trying to keep a property right um, that is benefiting our students that are attending either larger, more affluent districts. I bet you talked about this during your national superintendent interview, didn't you? I tried to. Um, it was interesting. So the, the actual whole interview was only four questions. What? Yeah. And they were really, they were, some of them were really good questions, but they, yeah. um, they, yeah, it was just four questions. So, um, like I had, a, I had some stump speeches planned, but they didn't, uh, they didn't let me get onto them. Well, I hope that they listen to this interview because you know that you're loving being on unsupervised leadership today versus that interview that you had for a week long <laughs> in Washington D.C. for the National Superintendent of the Year. Okay, finish this sentence for us. Are you ready? Yep. P.J. Capozzi is. Um. That's that's a terrible question, Courtney. It's Barbara uh, Walters' question. Isn't is it? it great? Yes. Yeah, it, no, it is a really good one. Um, and this was actually very similar to one of the questions they asked last week. It was, they asked to, I don't think this is like a property thing. So they asked to, it, it, and I'm going to steal the question on every interview I have after this, but it was pick three different people and tell me how they would describe you and tell me why they would describe you differently than each other. Hmm. So I thought that was a, a really good one. Um, I would say that I am... Uh, passionate and driven. Um, I am unafraid of taking big swings and, and hitting home runs or striking out uh, that hopefully I'm a good dad uh, and a loving husband. Uh, and uh, I care uh, about my people a lot. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's shifted the most is like, um, I would say that like in a self-critique, and this is a run-on sentence, so if you want to stop me, it's okay. But uh, as a self-critique, like when I first entered leadership in education at 27 or 28, um, I would have never said this and like it was never a conscious thing, but I saw very much like people as like cogs in the machine. Like do your job, follow research. I'm going to put you in the right position. Now it's your job to succeed um, to the point now um, where like if my people, I had someone in a health crisis last year, 
um, and they couldn't get a hold of their significant other, they called me next, right? Like I love my people. Um, and that like, that's been the biggest shift is like, I've, I've learned that, uh, that the only way that I am going to have success is by, by true, by truly engaging and loving with my people. Um, and so I hope that, that that's what they would tell you. Hey, that was great. I hope you answered that exactly that way when you were there <laughs> at, the, at the national superintendent um, interview. But before we go, we need to know who are some F4 fun, fab, fierce females that our listeners should know, follow, anyone you want to give a shout out to? Oh, that's interesting. Um, have you had Chase Milking on before? Mm-mm. So we had him as our opening keynote this year, and he was unreal and so like as like i get to travel all over the place and i hear keynotes all the time and so every once in a while i hear someone like oh like in three years they're going to be the thing like that was 100 my feel with with him and he's a, a great great guy as well so if you don't know chase um i would encourage you to get to know him um have you guys had sue on sue enfield yet yeah we had her on yeah, come so on pj we thought you listened to us over here I man you would have known this no i'm kidding Dang. Dang. <laughs> um so Sue's, Sue's amazing. Um, there's so many people doing good work. This is another um, great question. Try um, throw out some. I'll throw out some vendors instead of people because it's easier that way. But um, if you guys have done any work with paper, um, I think they're doing a ton to democratize um, access to high quality supports. Um, and their CEO, Courtney, I think you would love him. He's awesome. He's um, he's like 34 years old, Canadian, so he's got this weird accent. Um, and he is, he is a ton of fun, but he's also really, really serious and, and brilliant, obviously. Um, so Phil Cutler's his name. He's a great guy. I um, highly recommend um, the work they're doing. Um, one of the things that, have you guys ever talked about like these superintendent organizations that are essentially like timeshare places? Like, I think it's one of like the un, like, unspoken things that people, like I had no idea about when I got into the superintendency, like Insert and RTM and Dolly and IEI. No, we haven't, but yeah, go ahead and give a plug right now. Yeah. So one of the things that happens when you're a superintendent is all of a sudden you get these invitations to go on these, to these like five-star resorts for free. And you're like, what the, what the hell is this? Like, this can't be okay. Like what is, what is happening? And essentially what happens is vendors pay to present at these things and their conferences and you learn a lot, um, but you, you have to essentially sit through all their presentations. That's why you get to go to these conferences for free. And so there's a bunch of them with different business models. Um, and so I'm not going to promote one over the other with the exception of saying like, learn about them because some of them are like, you, you're going to get your, for lack of a better term, your, your education equivalent to like fortune 500 companies presenting, which we all know already, but like some are committed to like places that are truly startups, like without any clients that want feedback from superintendents, you get it on the ground floor of like advising some of these companies and really influencing the direction that education is going. Um, so I think like those are really cool, which leads me to the conference I was going to shout out, which is ASU GSV. Um, so if you have never been to ASU GSV, to me, it's by far the, the most interesting educational conference you go to because it's like 20% educators and it's 80% ed tech startups and uh, venture capitalists. So really the entire intent of this entire, the conference is for educators to work as feedback mechanisms for venture capitalists to then fund ed tech. Um, so if you go to this, you're going to, like there's no better conference that helps you envision what education is gonna look like in five years than this, because you have like the big money, the Gates foundations, those type of places, um, the Zuckerberg foundations like that are 
asking educators like us to sit in and be like, hey, which one of these would you actually use? Um, and then trying to develop stuff. So like that is a, a game-changing conference um, for anyone that's looking to expand themselves um, professionally. That's great. We've not had anybody share anything like that. And I know that we will have listeners that will be tuning in. PJ, this has really been an honor for us. I'm not joking about that. Kate and I love you. We know that you are highly respected across this entire nation and you do the work every single day. And one of the things I love best about you is that yes, you're everywhere, but you're a sitting superintendent that is out there doing this work. We will be in the front row cheering you on in San Antonio. We wish you absolutely the very, very best. And with that, we're turning it over to Kate to sign us off of this episode with PJ Capozzi. We're kind of a big deal now, aren't we? We are. Thanks, PJ. Yeah, PJ did this for us today, guys. Even though he's going to go back and on his plane ride to the National Superintendent Conference, he's going to listen to all the episodes that he missed. Catching up, 100%. But PJ, again, thank you so much for coming on. To all of our F4 listeners, we know we gave you a really early Christmas gift for 2023 with PJ on today, so you're welcome in advance. Until next time, if you don't have a seat at the table, you can always sit with us.